I talked to comedian Zoe Lyons about living with and chronic and I talked to comedian Zoe Lyons about living with and chronic. You used to Love. fucking work for it. Come on. <laughs> Hello, Hannah Levy from the Chronicle. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello, and welcome to episode 178 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and I am annoyed with the squirrels. <sighs> what have they done? They're very cute, but the cute little fuckers keep digging up my bulbs and digging all my soil out of my pots, and I'm getting a bit frustrated with it now. I want crocus, Dorrit. Yeah, I had a squirrel in my gun the other day. It was quite exciting. I don't often get squirrels. And now I know that I probably don't have any daffodils left. <laughs> well, I've got like six squirrels that if you want to borrow some, feel free. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. Yesterday, right, put this on Twitter. Twitter didn't seem to care. Yesterday, did a load of laundry, dried it all, folded it up, got to the bottom of the pile of folding, right, so I folded everything. Mm-hmm. And the T-shirt, that I, the last T-shirt, I noticed it's got blood on the front of it oh no and i was like oh what's that and i thought that's weird because i've just washed it so where's it come from right and then i looked and i had see big cut on my finger right just bleeding and i hadn't noticed i'd done it and literally every single item of clothing had blood all over it and I had to put it all back in the wash. You could have decided it was some sort of fashion statement about like the amount of lives lost and destroyed by fast fashion, Hannah. <laughs> Absolutely. We've all got blood on yeah. our t-shirts when we think about it. I should have scrolled it into tax the rich or something, <laughs> shouldn't I? <laughs> oh, you get my vote. Later on, actor Claire Perkins tells me about her incredible role as Alvita in Zadie Smith's new play, The Wife of Wilsdon, and reveals exactly how cool she played it when she met Christopher Walken. I talked to comedian Zoe Lyons about living with and chronicling her experience of alopecia. And in Rated or Dated, we watched The Last Supper. Don't drink the wine, people. Or eat the tomatoes. In fact, maybe just go to McDonald's. Good tip. But first... Everything stinks. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. If you were expecting a joke here, you've not been watching the news this week. (sighs) Massive sigh. Anyway, I hope you're all sitting down, perhaps with some smelling salts to hand, because events of the last week surrounding Owen Patterson, until very recently the Conservative MP for North Shropshire, have revealed the Conservatives to be a party of self-serving sleazebags with zero respect for integrity led by the grubbiest grub of Grub Town. I am shook. (laughs) Sleaze is an interesting word, isn't it? I'm confident that if I say sleaze, the majority of you would mallet mallet that immediately to politician or even more specifically, Tories. You say sleaze. (laughs) We say Tories. Sleaze. Tories. (laughs) We nailed that. We are hip as fuck. (laughs) We are up with the kids. So by sleaze, it's a sort of sexual jiggery pokery, financial shenanigans, ethics violations, and it's sleaze is as old as politics. Thank fuck, therefore, that following the parliamentary expenses scandal of 2009, then PM David Trotters-Up Cameron reformed the Tories and got rid of all of the sleaze. Phew. Alas, it turns out that, as with Brexit, not everyone got Call Me Dave's memo. So, in case you missed it last week, 
Following a two-year investigation, Catherine Stone, who is the Independent Commissioner for Parliamentary Standards, found Owen Patterson guilty of serial and egregious breaches of the rules. That is because he lobbied ministers and officials on behalf of Randox and Lynn's Country Foods, two companies that together were paying him more than a hundred grand a year. I mean, that is not chump change, even if you're giving it to a chump. Can I ask you, have you ever heard of either of those companies? I've heard a lot about them since. And so Randox are very heavily involved in COVID stuff. Right. Lynn's Country Foods. I don't know. It just sounds like a woman making sausages in her basement. (laughs) Doesn't it? I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, how the hell has she got £100,000? Well, she just goes to the WI stall. (laughs) Anyway, the All-Party Standards Committee, chaired by Labour's Chris Bryant, agreed that Patterson had brought Parliament into disrepute and recommended a 30-day suspension from the Commons. And I don't know about you, but that seems a pretty lenient sanction in the circumstances, right? Yeah. Well, Patterson was not a happy chappy, and instead of taking his punishment like a big boy, he threw a strop, insisted he was innocent, and, in a move so chopsy it is almost impressive, said, I'd do it all again, I tell you. <laughs> Soz Owen, uh, no thank you, because you you were bang to rights, pal, as Bryant says dozens of Tory MPs admitted. That didn't stop the government machine trying its damnedest to give Patterson a gow of jail-free card, though. Lobbying, read, bullying, Tory MPs to not only vote for a motion that would suspend judgment on the matter, but to change the rules for Patterson's benefit. And it passed. But only just, with 13 Tories voting against and 60 abstaining. What's more, the backlash was fierce and immediate, with even the Daily Mail declaring it a dark day for democracy. And less than 24 hours after the vote, haunted Victorian stick Jacob Rees-Mogg announced Mm. a U-turn, dropping the plan to pause Patterson's suspension and, it seems, the idea of setting up a new standards committee. Jumping before he could be pushed, shortly afterwards, Patterson released a statement announcing he was resigning. Oh, I will miss him! The fallout to the government's total fuck-up of the First Order, uh, not my words, but those of a senior Mm. Tory, continues... (laughs) With an emergency anti-sleaze commons debate later today, which is Monday the 8th of November. And man, am I looking forward to seeing how Boris Johnson slithers out of the... uh, Sorry, sorry, what? The Prime Minister won't be there to discuss the sleaze he helped create? Oh. That doesn't seem like him. (laughs) Oh, I'm very surprised over here. Probably, Hannah, there's a fridge he needs to urgently check out. Yeah. And perhaps while he's in there, Johnson might like to consider that for the first time since he got the keys to number 10, his rating in the polls has plummeted, with the Tories losing their lead over Labour. It seems, Boris Johnson, that finally the rules do apply to you. So I'm going to leave you with the glorious Susie Dent's word of the day, which today is catch fart from the 17th century, (laughs) meaning a follower of the political wind, one whose actions are guided entirely by the whims and desires of their boss. Does any of that stuff surprise you, Mickey? No? No, it doesn't surprise me, but I do still find it really depressing. Yeah. There should be a word for it. Something that doesn't surprise you, but is still horrifying. Is it my 30s? (laughs) (laughs) yeah so mickey last few months it seems like i've covered a lot of very worthy stories and i'm not complaining because the clue's in the name you know worthy Mm -hmm. but you know me i love nothing better than an unfeasibly stupid story like someone using a photo of dracula to represent (laughs) romania in an olympics opening ceremony 
or a woman from Boston pretending to be Spanish and also pretending not to know what a cucumber is. A a what? A what? How you say... So I did promise you another dumb as a bag of spanners story this week. But given that the world's leaders have been meeting to try and prevent climate disaster, undoubtedly one of the most important issues of our time, I thought I might just take a quick look and see what have been happening at COP26. And I'm sorry to say that I found something really important. And I know you've spent a lot of time sifting through Tory shenanigans because that seemed like the most worthwhile story of the week. But here we are, looking at headlines across the world, all trumpeting, no pun intended, (laughs) the same thing. President Joe Biden farted in front of Camilla (laughs) Parker Bowles. And not just any old bum too, a long fart. So long. (laughs) I thought you'd just called Joe Biden an old bum toot. So long a fart, in fact, that Camilla apparently can't stop talking about it. Oh, fair enough. Which might sound a bit infantile, but I will say that someone once let off in front of me with such force that it moved the curtain behind them. <laughs> and, I st- and I still find that hilarious and horrifying in equal measure. The story first appeared in the Daily Mail, which quoted an informed source as saying that the president had indeed let one rip. <laughs> I mean, this is definitely the sort of story you want an informed source on. Oh, absolutely. They went on, and I quote, It was long and loud and impossible to ignore. (laughs) The president, who has been urging leaders to cut methane production, tish, (laughs) met, met the Duchess during a reception at the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery, also attended by Prince Charles, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and Boris Johnson, who I've just noticed I've accidentally typed Boris Johnson there, and I think I should just leave that as it is. Johnson, just FYI, previously called Biden a breath of fresh air when it came to the environment. <laughs> Boom tish. <laughs> what that old bum tooth? The White House. <laughs> 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 the White House has refused has refused to comment because of course it has. But that hasn't stopped the story being reported in news at news outlets in news outlets around the world, including the New York Post, the New Zealand Herald and all UK tabloids. I mean, of course. Well, uh, to be honest, I've not checked to see what the Express is saying, but let's just go ahead and assume it's got a psychic contacting Diana to see what she made of it. Hashtag with the angles. Oh, what a glorious little bit of news that is (laughs) from the old bum suit, President Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Guffy Joe. (laughs) Oh, Guffy Joe. Old methane Biden. (laughs) So... Mickey, do you want a bit of good news? That was good that news. That good was news joyous news. <laughs> but go on, I'm always up for some more. Well, here goes. A rare atlas has been returned to Cambridge University Library 50 years after it was checked out by an unnamed student. It was returned to the Jerwood Library during a college reunion at Trinity Hall with a note saying it was, quote, of historical interest. Although I'm not sure if that was supposed to be an excuse or not. (laughs) Given that I just remembered I've not taxed my car, I might see if it works. More news as that happens. Genuinely, while I was typing this, I thought, what can I compare this to? And then I was like, oh, fuck, I haven't taxed my car. Yeah, you probably need to just do that instead of uh, trying the Atlas trick. Yeah. 
The Atlas was published by the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge, okay. which sounds like something a nefarious think tank would call <laughs> itself in order to deflect attention. But it actually published books on subjects intended for working class audiences. So great to see it back where working class kids can. Oh, yeah. Mick, want to guess what library fines would have been if the university hadn't decided to drop library fines three years ago? 50 years? Yeah. Of a book of important historical interest. Three and a half grand? Yeah. Is that right? Not bad. Three grand. Ah. Three grand it would have been. Yeah. I don't know if that person had just been waiting for them to drop the fines. (laughs) Again, though, don't do that with your car tax. It's not going to work out. No. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when I am always spoiled for choice. A boon for the section, but not so much for womankind. Also, it means that sometimes I miss stuff because I've had to choose between two, three or 857 sexisms. And so when the BMJ Military Health Journal published a study a couple of weeks ago, I didn't cover it. But it is in the news again today because, and brace yourselves for despite everything I said earlier, I am about to praise a Tory. What? I know, but Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, he who actually showed some genuine fucking emotion when Afghanistan fell, is taking the findings very seriously and has called for an extraordinary crunch meeting with his senior generals in a bid to correct the culture letting down so many of our armed forces women. First of all, a quick summary of those study findings. 750 women veterans were included in the study, with 22.5% saying that they had been sexually harassed and 5.1% saying they were sexually assaulted. Furthermore, around 22.7% of the women said they had endured emotional bullying during their time in the forces, and 3.3% said that they had been physically assaulted. Here I go again. Obviously, because these findings are based around self-reported events, they could underestimate or overestimate the true picture of what was experienced. But the study says it's also worth noting that many women do not report adverse service experiences due to fear of the consequences of doing so and may continue to suffer from increased mental health distress during and after military service. So I'm probably going to go with this as an underestimate. At the time, when the study came out, the Ministry of Defence released a statement that it was committed to improving the experience for women in the armed forces. So it is excellent to see Wallace, who is critical of how the military currently handles allegations of abuse, harassment and bullying, acting so very swiftly. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by actor Claire Perkins. Claire, hello. Hello. Nice to be here. <laughs> oh, it's lovely to have you. And Claire, people will no doubt recognise you from your time as Ava Hartman in EastEnders, as well as appearances in loads of other telly favourites and a ton of excellent theatre. And you're currently starring in Stephen Merchant's The Outlaws on BBC One alongside Christopher Walken. Obviously, yeah. we're going to get to that, obviously. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. The thing I'm most excited about is that you're about to take to the Kiln Theatre stage as Alvita, the title character in Zadie Smith's new play, The Wife of Wilsdon, which is a 21st century translation of Geoffrey Chaucer's classic, The Wife of Bath's Prologue. So let's start there. Claire, without giving too much of the game away, tell us about The Wife of Wilsdon. The Wife of Wilsdon is, um, well, it's going to be fun, hopefully for you guys and for us. It's also in a pub. Amazing. So uh, that would be great. <laughs> Anybody who knows The Wife of Bath's Tale and Prologue and Tale, Zadie 
has tried to stick quite close to the original, even though it's all been transported to Wilston in 2021. So all the themes are there. A lot of the things that happen in her ta- in her prologue and her tale are there. And the bigness of the main character is there. She's large, man. She's large. So, yeah, it's good. Written by Chaucer, pretty well known. Channeled through the incredible Zadie Smith, an older woman with a lot to say who isn't scared to say it in the slightest and backed by an amazing cast. Alvita yeah. must be a bit of a dream job, right? I mean, it's great. It's really, really cool. I think I have been quite lucky in that I don't really get typecast. There was a time in my, I think probably my late 30s, early 40s, where I just seemed to be playing like Black South London mums. And I was a bit like, oh my God. But <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all right. It's work. But as an actor, you just want to be, you kind of want to be as far away from you as you can, or to be a completely different character, or to be a character that's really got something to say. So, um, and I think Alvita's, there is a line which is uh, something about uh, people getting annoyed when women usually say things that are said by men. She is that character. She's that person. She's the loud person who you're like, who's that woman talking in the corner? (laughs) Not necessarily annoying. She's the person that everybody knows. You know, like if you've got a local pub and you mention that woman, everyone's like, oh yeah, I know. I know Tracy. Do you know what I mean? So she's, that's who Alvita is. But I think she's also loved in her community. And that's a nice thing as well, because it's firmly based in Brent and Kilburn. Um, So it'll be nice for everybody from Brent and Kilburn that we've got, you know, a few little references. And uh, yeah, Yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's about, I suppose... It's about her, it's about community, it's about women, it's about men, it's about all of us, it's about life. It's about truth and (laughs) non-truth. Well, I'm glad you've mentioned the word truth, because obviously The Wife of Wilsdon, I've read The Wife of Bath, but I haven't seen The Wife of Wilsdon, but like you say, they're closely aligned. But yeah, The Wife of Wilsdon isn't scared to tell her truth. I mean, you can't stop her. My emphasis is very much on it being her Her truth. truth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is kind of like what we all do. You know, like you have a truth, especially when it's about relationships and stuff. There's the stuff you'd say to your to your girlfriend, you're like, yeah, but he was like, and, uh, but he, you know, he's become that in your mind over time. That's what you say. That's how uh-huh. you tell the story now. In that way, it's truthful. See what I did there? You're well in character. She might not be telling the truth, but it is truthful that that is how we actually tell the truth. Yeah, see, that's, it's tricky, it's tricky. I think telling the truth and certainly being a woman who speaks out about what her truth is seems like it's becoming more accepted now. In Chaucer's day, absolutely yeah. not. And so that's why the wife of Bath is one of the standout characters yeah. in the Canterbury Tales. But also speaking truth and not having any filter, which obviously Alvita lacks a filter, it seems both blissful and absolutely fucking terrifying to me. Like, it would be amazing to be like that, but I'd be scared of what I said. Yeah. Is it refreshing to play that kind of character or are you sort of like that in real life? Uh, (laughs) Do you know what? It's so funny because I'm like, oh, it's great playing this character. And then so many actors have gone, yeah, but like, we can't think of anyone else who could who could play that character and then they're like oh yeah I read that and I was like well that's Claire Perkins which I find a little bit rude but um really you know but uh, no it's cool I mean I am I always think that I'm a bit shy and then when I say that to people literally they piss themselves laughing but sometimes I do feel a little bit shy I'm the sort of person who 
don't know, there'll be something going on and you'll you'll realise that everyone's being quiet and I'll just be like, well, can we just fucking say what? Do you know what I mean? I will say (laughs) there's actually an elephant in the room. Can nobody see it? That's probably me. I am that person. Shyness and acting is an interesting one, isn't it? Because you're not the first actor I've spoken to who's mentioned that. And I guess part of being an actor, people go, you can't be shy, look at what you do. But you do it as As someone someone else. else. When you're on stage... You're, it's, it's not me it's not Claire it's Claire it's Alvita do you know what I mean so that's different everything I say and do or whatever I sang in a band once um, a few friends of mine they had this band it was called the Pop-Eyed Dolls I was the lead singer and I'd always wanted to sing in a band and then we did a couple of gigs and I was terrified like you could literally see mm-hmm. the shirt that I was wearing trembling and shaking and I was just sweating and I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I could do this. I mean, maybe I could do it now, but at the time I could not do it. But yeah, I can go on stage. And obviously I get nervous, you know, it's beginners. You've got five minutes before you go, you get a bit nervous and then you just go on. So uh, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a different thing. Maybe we're just hiding behind the characters. We want the limelight, but not, you know, secretly, but not for ourselves, for the character. So the wife of Bath, therefore the wife of Wilsden is is Chaucer's bawdiest tale yeah and Chaucer's wife is exactly what the medieval church saw as a wicked woman I'm doing the rabbit's ears yeah. a lot here listeners. <laughs> but so what can we expect from Zadie Smith's wife and how do you think the definition of wicked women has changed uh well I don't I mean the definition of wicked women is probably it's it's probably the same now because still people will still say fucking old witch or and stuff like that even though witch the term witch like no one's going to burn us well not in this country anyway for being a witch or stone us or whatever but it's still it's still used as a as a put down and wicked women aren't necessarily wicked are they they're just uh, wicked women are loud forthright I mean obviously there's real wicked women uh, there are murderers that are female in prison but the, you know when people uh-huh. say oh yeah she's a wicked woman it's usually because she I don't know she fucking snogged someone's husband or which let's face it it's not a, not a good thing to do but it's not wicked <laughs> is it and yeah I think what you can expect is the wife of Bath um, the wife of Wilsdon is inhabited by the wife of Bath it's bawdy it's big it's a bit rude <laughs> which is great <laughs> it's really good fun and I've got five husbands I love I was, it. When I got off of the show, I was like, <laughs> I kept saying to my mates, oh yeah, I've got this play and I've got five husbands. I've got five husbands. So it's great. I've never been married, but I've got five husbands for like, I don't know, the next eight weeks. <laughs> Claire, what would you do with five of them in real life though? They take up a lot of time Yeah, and but I mean, you could just have them on rotation, couldn't you? You'd never get fed up. You'd be like, that's enough. <laughs> next. Yeah. You're like, come back like, next Like week. those knickers that have the days of the week written on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Some sort of, yeah, yeah, those knickers. Yes, I used to have those when I was little. i'd like to know if anything has changed for you as a woman or as an actor since being part of such such a big woman-centric production and having those speeches do you know what's funny i did a show about two years ago called emilia it wasn't similar but it was very like women fucking loved it I had to do this speech. It was at the, the Globe, right? It was right? at the Globe, Isn't but then it? it was in the West End. And yeah. there was a speech that I did at the end. And I remember from the very first time I did that speech, I was at the Globe. It was our first night, but kind of like, there was a lot of us in the company who kind of felt like, we're not ready. It was a sort of, it was a, a hard creative process. 
And so, yeah, mm. by the time we came, it came to the first night, it was like, oh my God. And the show went fine. And I started doing the speech and I could see this woman and I was like, cause I saw her face crumple. And I was like, is she crying? Like, you know, you sort of notice these things and like, it wasn't a, a fully formed thought. And then I saw somebody else and then I looked like the Globe stage, there's people right in front of you. Like, and people were crying and it's a, it's a speech about women and anger about how we're not allowed to be angry and uh yeah and about how we're held down and stuff and then every time i did that speech it was making me get goosebumps it was like the reaction from the women was it was just incredible and i could feel the rest of the company because the rest of the company come on stage behind me and that would have been like 15 or 16 other women so they're all women on stage and there were women like reacting to the speech in the audience so that was that was a great thing and i feel like this is kind of like a continuation like I'm really lucky to get them parts because now playing her it's like she has got a lot to say to women but she's got more in more of a behavioural way even though you know you might watch the play and think look I wouldn't fucking behave like that but um, because she's unapologetic and she's big and she just yeah wants to have fun she says like I'm just out getting mine and that's what she's doing having fun uh, making sure her life is fun trying to be the best wife she can in her own way. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure I believe that last yeah, bit. Yeah, no, you see? <laughs> That's what she believes. Yes. When you're talking about Amelia and being able to see people's reactions, I guess when we do our stuff on stage for standard issue, comedy clubs are lit a lot differently to a theatre. But I didn't realise that you would be able to see people's reactions. Yeah. Do you have to kind of try to tune it out though? Yeah, sometimes, yeah, you do. And you have to, yeah, you sort of tune it out. And then there's the weird thing where you've done something and I always feel on stage that nothing is a given. You cannot say, because I'm in this great show, it's just great and it's going to be great. So every night, it's not every night, it's not the first night, obviously, but every night is a fresh night Mm -hmm. and it's a fresh audience. So you can never take, you can never be like, oh, in a minute, this is where people are going to cry because that's, do you know what I mean? It's like, you just can't, you have to give them the fresh version of it as though you don't know well you don't know even do you you just don't know from night to night how people are going to react you know sometimes people laugh in places where you kind of want to go that wasn't funny (laughs) (laughs) but obviously it was funny to them so yeah it is it is strange seeing people's reactions I suppose a lot of the time in the theatre or when I first started working it would be more you'd look out into light or darkness, but you couldn't really see. Mm. But now there's so many innovative lighting designers and designers and, the, you know, I suppose plays, uh, theatre's always been a bit like that, breaking moulds and there'll be different ways of doing stuff. So, yeah, you do find a lot more now that you are, um, yeah, just seeing the audience or, or up close to them because some of the audience, like the set is a part of, it's, uh, it's the replica of the Colin Campbell pub, which is across the road from the Kiln Theatre. Mm-hmm. Some of the audience are in the pub. So they are in the side seats of the pub. So uh, Indu, our director, just calls them the cheap seats because I think they were the cheapest seats, but I think people want to sit there. God yeah, knows absolutely. Why. There will be people like just there. Well, let's talk about a completely different acting experience. Let's talk comedy thriller The Outlaws, which is on telly. And I've seen episode one, and it is a spot-on mix of warm, witty, and gritty, and I'm really looking forward to watching the rest. So again, without giving too much of the game away, can you tell us about your character, Myrna, and also what drew you to her? 
Myrna is an activist. Uh, I don't know if you know Bristol, but because we filmed a lot in Bristol before, during and after lockdown, I just fell in love with that city. But the city's got a real punch at the heart of it. Like people are, they're interested. They're, they're not just in their community signing petitions. They're out on the street saying, let's change stuff. Pulling down and, statues, uh, yeah. Pulling down statues and the street art is political and mm, it's uh, wonderful. and it's lovely. I find the people of Bristol to just be lovely. And you know, you can go somewhere for two weeks and go, oh my god, everyone was lovely. But like, I was kind of down there for like nearly a year. Yeah, I just loved it. And Myrna is, she's from Bristol. She's an activist, so there are a lot of activists. That's the word I was. I was anarchist, is what I was going to say. But activist is the word I was looking. For. She cares deeply about people. She wants to do the right thing. She's kind of, she's an older woman. So again, it's another great character because uh, she's supposed to be um, 60. She's been uh, sort of fighting for community and stuff all her life. And she's kind of a relic of, not a relic, yeah, yeah, of the 80s. You know, like uh, the poll tax riots when people, when she's a like lot a green more green and common woman. Yeah, she's like a green and common woman, but she's a bit, more rough around the edges, I suppose. I know not all of the Green and Common women were middle class. No, but, there was some um, rough around the edges there as well. Yeah, there was some rough around the edges. But she's not scared to, you know, go and throw paint on something or pull down the statue or whatever. She's hands-on. She says uh, being an activist means being active. It's not about politely talking to the council and asking people. It's about change. So, yeah, she's a great character to play. And then with the mix of other characters who are all completely different, it just makes for drama. Oh, it's so, amazing. It's so good. It's, it's re- And it's fun as well. And I did notice that even in episode one, Christopher Walken quite readily goes full Christopher Walken. Absolutely yeah, not. A yeah, complaint. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's fucking great. He's so great. <laughs> he's really cool, sweet guy. I mean, he's kind of old now. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's really cool. It was so funny because uh, when they said it, I went down for a makeup test before we'd started filming and they went oh yeah so you know it's going to be played by Christopher Walken and I was like ha, ha, ha. yeah and she was like yeah, really and I kind of didn't believe her you know when you're thinking no it's not don't be stupid yeah because especially I'm sure he's a lot of people's favorite actors but he's one of my favorite favorite actors like the deer hunter and also I'm talking like fancying full-on fancying him <laughs> do you know what I mean so then when he comes on and even though he's old he's like Christopher Walken exactly. do you know what I mean he's so cool like when he walks like you'd see him walking away from you and like you just could not mistake that it was him or something he's got really long legs just like the way that he walks and stuff yeah so you'd just be on set and he'd turn around to do something and you'd be like oh yeah that's like Christopher Walken in your head you're like that do you know what I mean did you manage to keep your cool yeah I managed to keep my cool I managed to keep my cool I tell a lot of like really stupid jokes and uh, he really liked my jokes. So I was like, oh, good, excellent. I'll just keep telling the most, I'll keep telling my dad's jokes. I think everybody became friends, but he basically came for four weeks. So, but we filmed series one and series two, like back to back. So he came for four weeks during a really long shoot. I mean, it was months. He came for four weeks the first time and then four weeks the second time. So all of his stuff was done in that four weeks. Yeah, it was uh, an honor and it's still kind of a bit unreal. You know, I watch it and I'm a bit like, and as you say, there he is. But no one has that phrasing. No. You know, the only way you can do that phrasing is to mimic him. Uh-huh. And also he does that phrasing, but it just brings the lines alive in the most amazing way. And, and also he does things like, 
you know, they'll say action and then he'll just do something and you're like, well, that wasn't in the script, but it'd be hilarious or whatever. Some of it's still in the show, so I won't say what. I mean, it's a cracking cast all around, Christopher Walken notwithstanding. It's so diverse in the best possible way. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. And everyone was like, really, like, really, really nice. So me and uh, Darren Boyd, our characters are like at loggerheads. But um, yeah, we became really good friends. He's a lovely guy. Really funny. He's a lovely guy. Yeah. I definitely recommend that people give it a watch. So The Wife of Wilsdon starts at Kiln Theatre in London tomorrow. And it runs to December the 24th. So get your tickets at kilntheatre.com. But move fast because those tickets are shifting. And obviously, Claire, that is you until Christmas. But what's happening for you after that? Um, I don't know. It's really weird because, like, for the last couple of years, I've sort of known. Yeah, just go home and uh, do a few self-tapes and a few auditions and see what happens. Maybe take your five husbands with you. Maybe take my five husbands. I haven't seen my mum and dad. My mum and dad um, retired to Tobago. They usually come over here every summer, so maybe I'll, that's what I'll be doing after Christmas is uh, going to get a week in the sun. See my mum. It yeah. sounds like you've worked your arse off over the past couple of years, so it is well-deserved. But I'm the sort of person I love working. Like, I'm just... Uh, I've got three kids, and they're all grown up now, like proper adults. So people go, oh, my God, you must be so tired. You must want to rest. And I'm a bit like, I was tired. I was tired 20 years ago. I'm not tired anymore. Now I'm like, fine, bring the work, bring it all on. I just, yeah, I just say yes to everything. Where can people find out what you're up to? I'm on social media. Yeah, I'm on, I'm like, Claire... Claire, Claire Perkins official it's only called that because a mate of mine I wasn't on it and she was like you need to be on Instagram and I was like oh I don't know if I want to do all of that so she was doing it for me and then one day I had to look at it and I was like I'm not sure I'd say that and I was like I don't know what I'm going to do it but yeah it's Claire Perkins official thank you so so much for chatting with me break a leg I am so excited to see the wife of Wilsdon nice one cheers Hello, Hannah here. I am welcoming from lovely Brighton, lovely Zoe Lyons. How are you? I am very well. I've had my first swim in the sea in about a month. You are a lunatic. <laughs> well, it's it's Jen Brister's fault. It was our sort of anniversary of year-long swimming because she got me into it last November, just before the last lockdown. But she'd been going all summer, so she'd sort of built up to it. But uh, we love it. Jen's a really good swimmer as well. I am a dipper. She's a swimmer. She tolerates me sort of just floating along like a sort of <laughs> like a bit of sea effluent beside her. <laughs> a couple of my friends started swimming in the river recently. They keep saying to me, "Oh, you should come along." And I'm like, "Just absolutely no. Just stop asking. It's just not going to happen." You see, rivers are weird, aren't they? I don't like rivers. The thing with salt water is it, it has an embrace to it. Because of the buoyancy of the salt, mm. it it won't just let you slip away immediately. But fresh water doesn't care. It's emotionless. <laughs> it's a it's a narcissistic stream of fluid that will just engulf you. <laughs> I don't know, I probably overthought that, but it's, it's quite beautiful. So <laughs> it's very thin. There's a thinness to it. Mm. It doesn't need you. Whereas the sea will sort of keep you afloat for a bit of time. <laughs> Last time I spoke to you, which was back sort of mid-pandemic, you were doing something brilliant, which was working one day a week driving a van because you couldn't bear the thought of not working. Yeah. What's it like being back on stage? Yeah, I'm better at that than van driving. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite a long wheelbase van that hit a few things. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's nice being back on stage. I have to be honest, I've been very cautious with myself and I haven't, you know, as, as soon as the sort of doors opened and we could all get out again and clubs started booking up, I w- I've taken it very, very slowly. I just knew if I went from zero to hell to leather again, mm. I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to cope with it. Because, you know, lots of things happened during the pandemic and, you know, I think I've changed quite a bit and I don't have the energy I had for the travel. I just do not have it. So I just thought I'm going to be gentle with myself and hopefully, fingers crossed, we've been through the worst of this. Mm. Fingers crossed, hopefully, but who knows? I think anything the last 18 months has told us is uh, prepare for the unexpected. I've done a few gigs which I have really enjoyed and I am sort of slowly putting them back in. I also saw you on my telly doing a quiz show, Lightning. Yes, I've just finished filming the second series. That'll be coming back in January. Very happy about that. I love doing it. We did the first one in proper lockdown, like sort of proper sort of COVID conditions in, in in Belfast, August last year. And then September this year, just finished filming series two. Filming a game show is relentless, but the crew over there are just brilliant. They're just, I, I love going over there. People are just so lovely, so friendly. Yeah, I've really, really enjoyed doing that the last two series i'm gonna say you're a quiz fan because i know you've been on stuff i know you've been on mastermind and uh and yeah. on pointless yeah does that prepare you in any way for being the person who asked the questions no not really <laughs> i found i mean being on a quiz has its own pressures but presenting a quiz has a lot of pressure particularly because this one's up against the clock and getting the questions out at a reasonable pace mm. and being fair being the anchor of people's hopes and dreams when it comes to performing well on a quiz show has its own pressures did you feel the need to kind of develop a persona because quite often question masters have a thing don't yeah. they yeah what i was going for because it's bbc two it's six thirty, so there's only so far you can go yeah. and, you know, and i've had people go up to me going oh, you're not the same as you are on stage you're like no because if i said the things i said on stage <laughs> I'd be off air within five minutes. <laughs> People don't really sort of put these two things together. Like, it's a slightly different audience. Mm. I wanted it to be friendly but cheeky. So when they do make horrific mistakes, you know. Yeah. Absolutely carte blanche, take the piss. But in the, in a gentle sort of 6.30 BBC Two way. Something else you've been doing recently on Instagram is talking about the fact that you have Developed? I don't know if develops the right word. I certainly don't want to use the word suffering, but you have alopecia. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I've got it quite bad at the moment. I um, originally got alopecia when I was about 11 years old. Again, stress-related. And I would say about a third of my hair fell out when I was about 11. Oh, sorry. That must have been really hard. Yeah, not easy. I've always said I'm, I'm, I'm not a particularly vain person. So, it, you know... It, there were much harder things to deal with and it sort of grew back reasonably quickly when I was young as well it sort of it fell out I sort of had about six seven eight months of sort of having to have a comb over and then it started to grow back yeah it was quite yeah it's what every 12 year old girl wants isn't it um <laughs> a comb over I sort of had to engineer my hair in the morning my mum and I would also have to engineer it so that it would be hidden enough but I was able to to sort of pretty much hide it when I was younger. Um, and then I had patches all through my life. Every now and again, sort of like a 50p sort of like size patch of hair would come out and I'd immediately panic because i think, oh God, is it going to all grow? Mm. And then it would, it would stop and it would come back and um, it would grow back and it would be fine. And I, that would be 
Very rare, though. I'd have it every few years. I could usually sort of attribute it to, you know, a, a stressful thing that had happened yeah. or being run down or overtired or all of those things. And then just at the start of lockdown, I started to get, it started to fall out with me at the back. And again, I didn't really worry because I thought, well, it's happened before, it'll stop, you know. And then another little patch appeared and uh, I was like, okay, okay. And then August from last year onwards, it was just when we started filming the first series of Lightning, it it started to really come out the sides. I started to really notice it and I had a very lovely makeup artist and I was like, I don't know. What, I don't know what to do because now you can see it. Mm. Um, but it hadn't lost enough for me to sort of need a hairpiece or anything. But so she was like, "Oh, it's sure it'll be fine. We'll just <laughs> we'll just paint it in," which is what they did. They painted in my head. So yeah, the camera wouldn't shine on my scalp or anything because it, yeah, literally just painted in <laughs> painted in patches on my head. After that, September October, it, it just really went. It was quite alarming all came out on one side and I knew at that point it wasn't going to stop. It's not so much the the having lost your hair, it's the losing your hair for me is the, is the, was the really, really stressful part. I found that really upsetting. Just being in a shower, holding handfuls of your own hair is uh, challenging. So I don't want to say something crushingly insensitive here, but actually, this is what I find really interesting about it. When I was a kid, my dad had stress-induced alopecia mm. and had no hair for about yeah. two years. I don't yeah. really remember it that much. It did grow back. And the thing I remember more clearly is when his first came back, it came back snow white, even yes. though he was only in his 20s. Yeah. And whenever people used to see me with him, they used to ask me if that was my granddad. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I can remember that period. But... Five, six years ago, my mum had chemotherapy mm. and her hair came out in about, I would say, a fortnight. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was, like you say, I would just see it literally on the floor as she was mm. walking. I would see a trail of hair and it was, yeah, it was a really upsetting thing to see. Mm. But even so, I have no concept of what it's like because it wasn't, it wasn't me. Do you know what I mean? I could, in both yeah. of those scenarios, I can look and think... Well, it was clearly harder for my mum because, you know, there's a different thing about your hair when you're a a woman. Also, it's associated with the chemotherapy as well, which is, you know, arguably more challenging than... Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. But I still just think I have no... I I, I can't even understand what it must be like. I mean, we interviewed Gail Porter about it as well. Hmm. Am I right that you can't possibly understand it until it happens to you? Yeah, and I guess people deal with it differently. I think But what happened with me, I I I had a very difficult year last year, culminated in me living separately from my partner for a while, and um, it was just an absolute disaster of a year. You know, everything happened at once. I I, Menopause, midlife crisis, pandemic. I was like, come come on, chuck it all in. (laughs) My partner and I, we've been together for many, many years. There there were issues that we just became highlighted during the whole Mm. claustrophobic event of bit of lockdown I ended up living on my own in a, in, a, in a flat in Brighton that was really sparse and bare but I kept it that way because it seemed to reflect my mood and need <laughs> it was like I think of, I called it my divorced dad flat <laughs> uh, basically you know a couple of couple of cups and a spoon <laughs> 
Just a chair but, and an ashtray. Do you know, basically, that was really, <laughs> and a chair, but a lovely view. So I was like, that's all I need is a view. I just need the view. Yeah. At least that'll keep my mind outside of what's going on. But every morning I'd wake up, and it was, I think everybody experienced this, you know, last year, you know, into this year, waking up going, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. just, trying to, just trying to make sense of it all. So I'd get up in the morning, and I would just feel it like sort of, snowflakes falling onto my shoulders and um the flat i was in as well it was um i'm going to say um interestingly decorated it had the sort of feel of a sort of bear its flat that an elderly homosexual gentleman would have occupied during a summer just so that he could look at young boys from the balcony i don't know why i felt like that in there but that's how it felt to me. it had white tiled floor which is very european yeah. isn't it Probably great to lie on when you're having a hot flush. Possibly, yes, to sort of (laughs) chill out on it. I mean, I'm not saying I've laid down on my kitchen floor before now. It's the reverse of under floor heating, as you need when you're a 50-year-old woman. You need above floor cooling. Um, (laughs) So it it had this white tiled floor, which, you know, it's a questionable decorative choice. In mm. any scenario. But when you've got predominantly dark hair and it's falling out, it's just the worst thing in the world. Because oh, yeah. it would just highlight all of this hair. So every morning I'd have to go around and I'd shout at them, the ones that had left my head, you know, you bastards, bastards, <laughs> you traitors. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Come on, we're in this together. Look at my pubes, they've stayed in. Um and just gather nests of hair and every day I'd wake up and go it'll stop soon it'll stop soon it'll stop soon it will stop soon it has to stop soon and it just didn't and it just went across my head like an eclipse taking with it everything in its path I found that very distressing I found that very challenging I found it very very depressing and I think it was also because it was at a time when we didn't have that much work going mm. on. And any work we did have was on Zoom. And I'd be like, what am I going to do with my head? Yeah. <laughs> There's only so many corporate gigs you can do in a beanie. Because I kept thinking, it'll stop, it'll stop, it'll stop, and it'll grow. And then eventually one day I went, it's not going to stop, Zoe. And it's not going to grow back this week. You've got to go and get yourself a wig. And I really struggled with that. I really struggled with it. I think it's because I've got shorter hair, always had shorter hair. And um, I had good hair. Yeah, you did. I had good, strong hair. I liked my hair. There's not many things I would compliment myself on sort of physically, but I was like, good hair. That is good hair. Agreed. So, so when your hair goes, you're like, oh, I'm going to have to get a syrup of fig. Thankfully, I met a really lovely woman whose name I got through a makeup artist on, on a telly show I did. And um, she makes very, very good wigs. She, you know, she used to work in TV and film and drama, so she's made a lot of sort of wigs for period cost, costume dramas and that sort of thing. And she helped me tremendously, and I managed to find something that that worked for me. What did I go for? Ask me. But I'm going to assume that they come in a variety of styles, and none of those styles screamed Zoe Lyons. Ginger perm. That's what I went for. Ginger perm. Um, <laughs> I was so tempted to get something completely different. No, she she made a wig for me. It's real hair, 
I always put it on and go, I wonder whose head this came off and what they used to think about. So she made it very, very close to my colour of hair. And also with my, I have a grey streak in my hair and she put that through for me. So it did, it looks, it, it looks very, very close to my hair. Longer than I would have normally had it because of the logistics and ergonomics of having a shorter wig. It doesn't look out of place at all. It doesn't look, and I've, and I've, I've got, I've got used to, I, I did, I'll be very honest, I, I, when I know you know people have to deal with much more upsetting things, but I found it really hard. I did find it really hard. I think possibly because I was in my you know divorced dad flat with its bare its tiles, and there was not a lot going on. Mm. And I did struggle with that. I remember the first first bit of telly I did with it. It was outdoor location, and I was like, "Oh, it's going to blow off. It's going to just blow off, take off down the street like a sort of demented, long-haired dash hound." Um, <laughs> people would see me going, "Stop it! Stop, Stop that wig!" So for the first few times I wore it, I wore a hat on top of it as well. But yeah. I've got much more confident with, with wearing it. How has talking about it been? I mean, obviously it's quite difficult not to talk about it. Why did you decide to actually start addressing it? And, and what, what sort of response have you had from people? Well, I suppose I started to address it because I, I found it hard. And I thought, well, other people must find this yeah. really hard too. So it's not that you're ashamed of yourself. It's just there is a... I suppose I felt a sort of embarrass, a slight embarrassment. I suppose because of the situation I was in anyway, which was exacerbated by everything else, there's that awful feeling of sort of, you know, if you are going through a difficult period in time, life, it, that, that feeling of vulnerability, mm. not feeling strong, and waking up and being upset at the situation. And I thought, well, the only way that I can feel better about this is by owning it. Mm. And by taking its power away and getting my power back mm. and addressing it and going, yeah, this is, I mean, this is what it is. There are far, far worse things that can happen to people, but it's it very, very much not my confidence. And, if, and I am, you know, for a living, I, I, I expose myself yeah. a lot. Not in a nude way, um, not yet. And I didn't want to anymore, and I didn't want to be on stage, and I didn't want to be looked at, and I thought, I'm going to have to address this, and I'm going to have to get my power back. By talking about it, it has really, really helped, and people's responses have been very sweet and very kind, and it affects so many people. It affects so many people. What's the right thing for me to say to you now? If somebody's listening <laughs> yeah. and they've got a friend who's going through this and they want to say something that's not, not, not stupid or annoying or, you know, properly supportive, what, what, what would be helpful to hear, yeah. do you think? I, I think just an acknowledgement that um, it, it, it is actually quite a stressful thing to experience and to go through. And that, you know, if you feel the sadness for it, it's fine. It, that's, that's totally understandable because this is an altering of your appearance mm. but ultimately it doesn't alter your soul mm. and I, I am forever grateful that in every other aspect of my life I am I am healthy I am able to do things I am you know otherwise fit and well and I have been so encouraged and so heartened by people's responses and I have my my, my friends are 
able to laugh with me about it as well. I mean, really laugh with me about it, you know. And that, for me, as a comedian, that just takes you know, all of the sting out of mm-hmm. me. I was with a friend the other day, and she went, oh, God, my hair is awful at the moment. And she went, yeah, sorry, so. Uh, but because you know, I was sitting there with my hat off, and I've got, like, the, I've currently got, like, these zombie tufts going on. And she was like, obviously, it's bad, but it's not, it's not that bad. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's funny. It's funny, and sometimes I will, you know, I'll, I'll walk into a friend's room, and I have, I, I do have a comb over at the moment, and I'll just stare at them and go, "Be honest, can you tell?" And they're like, <laughs> "No, not at all. I mean, it looks absolutely fine." And that, that really helps. It really helps. Laughing at it, laughing with it, really, really helps for me. I've got alopecia areata, which, so it's on my head. It's, it doesn't affect any other body hair at all. Fine chest hair. I was going to say that must be annoying. Yes. Yeah. Cash hair out. Well, yeah. That seems exactly really that. cruel. And that's, I've talked about that on stage. The cruel irony of a woman <laughs> my age losing the hair on her head as the hair on her chin is fully coming into its own. <laughs> I mean, I have considered having a comb up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just really growing it out and combing it up. <laughs> Some mornings you wake up and you go, how has that got... That? And it's the, the the passion with which a chin hair will grow. Yeah. I mean, overnight it'll go, I could do an inch. Yeah. I mean, it'll just fire its way out, you know. Coarse enough for a small Jack Russell to bungee <laughs> jump off. It's um, my greatest fear in life, those those three seconds when someone goes, hang on, you've got a hair. Yeah, and, they put yeah, it, yeah. and you think, oh, it's going to be attached, isn't it? It's going to be attached. They think they're doing me a favour, but it's some weird cheek hair that yeah. just appeared the, overnight. They haven't used their foot as leverage to get it out. Come on. <laughs> Come on, you bugger. So I think talking about it openly, having, if you can, I know not everybody can, but if you can, have a laugh with it with your friends about it, you know. Currently my hair, it's growing back. Hooray. It's, it has stopped falling out, partially because there was nothing left. <laughs> <laughs> it literally, it was, like, it was like, right, we're done. It's like, no, but you <laughs> are, you're do done. There's, what are you going to do now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that is such a relief that it stopped falling out because, like I say, that that for me was the hardest part, it falling out. I can, once you know what you're left with, you can always deal with that, you know, Mm. looking at the mirror, you go, okay, this is what I'm left with. This side of my head has grown back, which I had nothing there six months ago. So the um, left side of my head is is really growing back. I mean, I've still got massive bald patches on top Mm. and, and, you know, nothing on top here, but... What happens with alopecia is if you do get regrowth, you get very, like you said with your dad, that white hair. Yeah, really downy. Really downy, baby, fluffy white hair. I think they call it vellus hairs. They're like really, they're sort of like hairs that are trying. (laughs) (laughs) Like a primary school hair, it's trying. And then that very slowly starts to get some, pigmentation to it and some colour to it very very slowly that starts to come back and I have a small patch here on my right hand side that's starting to grow in and the top of my head is is like a sort of albino kiwi fruit (laughs) (laughs) I mean most mornings I get up and look in the mirror and go oh my god you know because it's shocking (laughs) you know it is a bit shocking and, I, and I've promised myself when it grows back, it's going to be 
the best treated hair yeah. that the world has ever seen. It's going to be conditioned within an inch of its life. It's going to have a sort of Farrah Fawcett bounce to it. I'm going to have that sort of hair. I'm, I might grow it even big, just 80s big. Yeah. Just big hair and just with like a proper bounce to it when I walk. It's going to be massive. Zoe, where can people come and see you? Are you touring? Have you got something on the horizon? I sort of suspected that I wouldn't be in the mood to tour for a <laughs> yeah. while. I thought, well, do you know what? Let's not put added pressure on this and your divorced dad flat with your, with your wig. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, people go, oh, as a comedian, you must be finding this hilarious. Like, do you know what? As a human, no. It's like when pandemic hit, they were like, oh, this is material for you. It's like, it's a global pandemic yeah. and everything stopped. I'm responding like a human being, yeah. first of all. Although, although all the scientists I know, I said to them, oh, this must be really exciting for you, you know, from a science perspective. Mm. And they were like, yeah, but, you know, as a human being, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally terrifying. <laughs> I am tentatively going to tour again next year. I will get on the road again next year. Come to year. Cambridge, please. Yeah, I will come to Cambridge. But, um, but no, the next time people can see me, we'll be um, lightning back on BBC Two. Oh, excellent. And where's the best yeah. place for people to follow you for information on touring or if they are interested, you know, if we've got anyone who's experiencing hair loss and wants to track your journey? Um, Zoe Lyons comedy on Instagram thanks so much for talking about this with us Zoe it's an absolute pleasure it really is it's an absolute pleasure and there's also Alopecia UK there's there's charities out there that have loads of information and loads of support and stuff so if somebody is struggling with it then you know don't struggle alone welcome to Rated or Dated Hannah What film did we watch this week that made me ask a question I was not expecting, which was, who the fuck puts windows in the back of their cupboards? Yeah, I don't think they were windows. I think it was one of those shoot-through type things, but yes. This week, we watched indie black comedy The Last Supper, released in the UK in November 1996. Directed by Stacey Title who died earlier this year, aged 56, having been diagnosed with ALS the year before. The film was made in just 18 days, with Bill Paxton completing all his scenes in a weekend off from making Apollo 13. It made a bit less than half a million pounds at the box office and has a score of 64% on Rotten Tomatoes, having received pretty mixed reviews from critics. Although it's worth saying it was better received in Europe than the US, with Empire giving it four out of five stars and a French film festival giving it an award. I can actually remember my own reaction to it on my first and until a few days ago only viewing in 1996, and that's that it would make a way better stage play than a screenplay. Agreed, yes. So, all of that said, why have I picked this seemingly forgettable film to rate or date? Well, let's get to the plot. Five postgrad students... Jude, played then against type by Cameron Diaz, Paulie by Annabelle Gish, Pete by Ron Eldard, Mark by Title's real-life husband Jonathan Penner, and Luke by the ever-reliable Courtney B. Vance, share a house in Iowa. Once a week they all eat together and one of them gets to bring a guest. But when Pete gets stood up and his car breaks down, he decides instead to invite the man who has driven him home, Paxton's Zach, a Desert Storm veteran. Pretty soon, he reveals himself to be a racist and a Holocaust denier, and things go downhill from there, as he pulls a (laughs) knife, holds it to Mark's throat, 
threatens to rape Paulie and breaks Pete's arm. Moments later, Zach's dead on the floor with a knife in his back and the housemates decide, rather than come clean, to bury him in the garden and go on with their lives. Except they don't. In an attempt to justify their actions, they then have a philosophical debate about whether or not they'd kill a young Hitler. And soon they've come up with a plan. Invite someone to dinner every week who has views they find repulsive and if they can't change their minds, they'll save the world from said ideas by means of poison. Cue a parade of cameos including Charles Durning, Jason Alexander and Mark Harmon as racists, homophobes, misogynists, pro-lifers and anti-Semites who fail to pass the you-deserve-to-live test. But, as anyone who's ever lived in a house share will tell you, it's rare everyone agrees on anything. And this, combined with mission creep and outside pressure in the form of Nora Dunn's small-town cop on the trail of Zack, who also happens to be a suspect in her case of a missing teen, means the horrifying social experiment can only end badly, just in time for that last place at the dinner table to be taken by Norman Arbuthnot, a rush limbow alike played with relish by Ron Perlman. Mm -hmm. So far, so 2021, right? (laughs) (laughs) Although it's worth saying a contemporaneous review from the LA Times opens with the line, dipping its cup in the free-flowing vitriol of our current political discourse. And I want to get back to that in the old chit-chat, but I wanted to start here instead. That review also contained the following line, it's difficult to tell what title really wants to say. Mick, do you think that person should have had another job other than reviewing films? (laughs) I don't know. I think maybe we should invite them to dinner. See if they can like, get better at what they do and actually just in the end shout, no debate and poison them. What do you think title is trying to say? I think she's trying to say that it's bad to poison people because you disagree with them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's quite obvious, isn't it? Also, you can have too many tomatoes. Yeah, I mean, the word liberal... And the word left wing are used interchangeably in America, whereas they aren't here. No. And I'd say rightly so. (laughs) Exactly that. Because when they get to the meeting with Ron Perlman, there is a question over who is in fact more liberal, him or them. Yeah, they're just as entrenched in their views. It's just that their views are different. Did you like it would be a starting point. Did I like it? I think it's very entertaining and I was really into the concept. I thought it was a very clever idea. I didn't like it because it is almost one note hysteria from the off. It's very hysterical. Mm. They're all like flapping all of the time. And if they're not flapping all of the time, they're being horrifically smug while they kill people. But I, I thought it was a very canny idea and so I enjoyed it from that point of view. And also it was nice to see Ron Eldard because obviously the role I probably know him best for is Colt in Justified. And so it was nice to see him mm. looking all fresh-faced. Yeah, they are insufferably smug. i tell you what, Hannah, we should invite them to dinner and we can see if we can change <laughs> their mind. Well, see, that's the point, isn't it? Is is mission uh-huh. creep, is what goes wrong here. Because I think once you started off with the question... OK, let us let me ask you the question, Mickey. If you met a young Hitler, would you kill him? No, because I, I would... I think Ron Perlman's Arbuthot says this, and I think it's correct. It's like you try to talk to him and change his mind. But also it depends... At what point in Hitler's life did he decide to be an absolute horrific 
cunt. And are we getting in before that when actually we don't know that's set in stone? There's too many questions. It's not it's not a straight question. There's too many options. I don't think I'd kill Tiny Hitler. Me neither. Also, I'm not a murderer. <laughs> well, that's the point. Once you've decided to kill someone, right, then the arbitration of how you're going to kill them is what the problem is. And that's <laughs> exactly what happens here. Because... They decide that they're going to try and change these people's minds. And the amount of time they give them to change their minds becomes smaller and smaller and smaller every time, doesn't it? Exactly. I told him it was happy hour. He didn't even get his dinner. And instead of thinking, oh, maybe we are not the masters of language and debate that we clearly think we are. They think, Anna, you're wrong. No debate. Fuck you. Dead. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Although there is one person that, it, and it's interesting that Cameron Diaz decides that they don't want to kill and that's because she's a, a teenage girl. I think if she was a teenage boy, I don't know whether they would have felt the same. Cameron's Jude. And it's interesting, actually, uh, you might have been about to touch on this. So apologies if I am leapfrogging. The five housemates have all got sort of names similar to Apostles and Jude. Yeah. Cameron Diaz's character is, is Judas, I guess. So she is mm. the one who scuppers their plans. And yeah, she'd already, before they decide, or she decides to not kill the 17-year-old girl, she'd already said, I, I don't think we're playing the game right anymore. I don't really agree, Luke, that we should be just killing people every single time. Yeah. The female characters, are they're interesting because they are a broad range, aren't they? In fact, mm -hmm. her and um, Cameron Diaz and Annabelle Gish's characters essentially cross over in this. One of them's very unenthusiastic and becomes enthusiastic and one starts off enthusiastic and goes downhill and Nora Dunn albeit she's not in it for very long you know typical feisty small town cop liked her yeah yeah me too yeah I think I agree that with Jude and Paulie we get the full gamut of the two different ways women can be and with Nora Dunn's copper it's nice that she actually she, she actually gets to have quite a decently drawn character even though she doesn't have much screen time what i will say about this though is courtney b vance and ron perlman are brilliant in it everybody else i think could quite easily have been played by somebody else nobody else is quite as distinctive in it i don't think i mean cameron diaz was definitely playing against type she was doing it for cred wasn't she i think she was doing it for like I i've think got so. different credentials not just the pretty face I don't think she's bad in it, but I, I could I could probably name you 30 other actresses that would do that as well, whereas I can't quite think of anyone that would do what Ron Perlman's doing quite as well as Ron Perlman is in it. Perlman's amazing in it. And he's, he's very good yeah. at getting across why some of those technically far-right speakers have such big followings because he's incredibly charismatic. He is a provocateur and he knows which buttons to press. And you are left wondering mm. whether he actually means it or not. But of course, his massive following don't care whether he means it or not. They're just hearing what they want to hear yeah. said, being said on TV. And I actually think his character is, is probably the best drawn of them all because you do get to see the, the kind of softer underbelly for a little while. Unless, of yeah. course, he could just be playing the the resident libs at their own game as well. I mean, he kind of says it's all for effect, isn't it, mm. doesn't he? Which is what you will hear about Alex Jones or Milo Yiannopoulos and all of those people, which brings us to 2021. Yeah, like I say, 1996, whoever reviewed this seemed to feel that they were in a particularly polarised time. 
So question is, do we always feel like we're in a polarised time or did that guy just have no fucking idea what he was talking about? Is he the same guy who can't review films? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there is that. (laughs) I actually think, though, on that point, I feel like you could probably stick a pin in any point in history and it would feel like it was really divisive to people at the time. I think politics is divisive because the things that stand out are the extremes. The centre gets lost. And like Ron Perlman's character says, if the extremes get further and further apart and more and more extreme, hopefully that means that the centre gets bigger and somewhere in the middle is surely what we all want, right? Well, yeah, but I mean... How well do you think that opinion would go down on Twitter? How well do you think if you were invited to a dinner party of students now in 2021? Do you think you and I would survive that dinner? No, we'd get told it was happy hour. (laughs) We'd kill us before feeding us. Yeah, I think so. And I do think it's really interesting that it focuses on students because universities were the breeding ground for what is happening now, isn't it? You know, they were the place that whatever you want to call it people don't like using the word cancel culture do they but I'm going to use cancel culture because that's currently what it's called that's where it all started so I think it's interesting that it is students there are people now particularly in America I could probably name you three or four academics that have have had to leave their places of work Peter Bogosian recently had to leave his place of work Kathleen Stock here left her place of work so it is interesting that it focuses on students I think that's what makes it feel 2021 more than anything else And I do think as well that given this is supposition, obviously, so, you know, listeners, take it with a pinch of salt if you want or, you know, believe it, you do you. But I think if you gave certain activists or like students who would refer to themselves as activists, the idea that they could do this with impunity, they could invite someone and try to change their mind. And if they didn't change their mind, they could no platform that person forever. Yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think yeah. they'd be chomping up the bit to have a go at it. And I actually think that says more about them than the people that they want to know platform. Yeah. Because there's an interesting irony in this, that one of the people that they get there is someone who's into banning books. And you're like, well, that's interesting that you're, you, you object to someone who wants to ban books, but you're obviously not into freedom of speech. Does yeah. that make sense? If, yeah. yeah, it makes sense. We're saying it happens on the left and the right because like Nicole Hannah-Jones, the New York Times columnist who was behind the 1619 Project, she also was offered a, um, I think, people should have to Google this, don't take my exact word for it, but basically she was offered a position and then the offer was retracted or something. And it makes me wonder how this film would review if it came out now. I think, again, a lot of the people that title is targeting or has in her sights as a nah that's not the way to do it would probably not even realize it was aimed at them (laughs) yeah yeah that's a really (laughs) good point yeah because that's the 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 thing about that group of five is for a long old time in their delightful killing spree and tomato glut they have absolutely no self-awareness that only kicks in at the very end and it's too little too late spoiler alert yeah, you absolutely know that if this film came out now, that Jezebel or somewhere would have a hot take that said, what is wrong with killing people whose opinions you don't <laughs> agree with? <laughs> so I'm going to go back to my original point that I felt in 1996 and I feel even stronger now is that I don't know why the fuck somebody hasn't in 2021 updated this and made a stage play because I think it would be amazing. 
listeners, I am ferociously nodding. As, as soon as it kicked in, I was like, this is an incredible stage play. The action all takes place basically in one room. It's so screaming out to be on stage. Yeah, because, I mean, that was to do with money and time or whatever, like, to keep the budget down, mm-hmm. that they that they did that. But, yeah, it does, sc- it does absolutely screen stage play. And I think it is much more of a, a sort of a... Um, I mean, I love theatre, so uh, nobody take offence at this, but it's the kind of pretentious conversation that takes place way more in theatres than it does in cinemas. So I think that it feels like it's natural home. I agree. Why are they so bad at burying bodies, Hannah? (laughs) Yeah, it does seem really obvious. To make it clear to anyone who hasn't watched it, they bury them in mounds and put tomato plants on them, which is why there's an excess of tomatoes. I don't even think they're burying them. I think they're just laying them on the ground and then covering the bodies in soil. It's terrible. Would you eat tomatoes that you knew that somebody was underneath? I mean, racist and homophobic tomatoes, they are. (laughs) What I'd do, Hannah, is I'd invite the tomatoes around for dinner and see if I could change their mind. <laughs> so, last question. Rated or dated? I'm going to give it a rated. I think there are aspects of it that are very, very mid-90s, Cameron Diaz. But yeah. I thought it was good and I thought what it has to say is really interesting. Yeah, agreed. I'm glad I picked it because, I, uh, like I say, I saw it and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And then the minute I, saw, well, I first started watching it, I thought, fuck me, this is grainy. This is aged in that way. Quite uh-huh, badly. Yeah. It looks like a really cheap film. I felt like I was watching it on VHS, even though I wasn't watching it on yeah, VHS. Exactly that. But yeah, what I will say is if anyone's listening and you want to update this and make it a stage play, I am in. I am 100% in. Rated. I'd like to say I, I really do hope that uh, someone's listening because otherwise what the fuck is the point of this? <laughs> uh, anyway, what are we watching next week, Mick? Uh, next week we are going even further back in time. We are going back to the early 70s, 1971, to watch The Last Picture Show. Oh, fucking hell. What a glorious choice, Mick. Thanks, mate. We're going to have to try not to spend, like, the full 20 minutes just objectifying young Jeff Bridges. I'm not promising. (laughs) Standard Issue for All Women.